The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I was going to start this by trying to award you the second ever Champion of Freedom Award, uh, which was you know, given from Senator Rick Scott <laughs> to yeah. Donald Trump this weekend, but yeah. I forgot my tiny little silver trophy. I, I left it at home. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's like uh, the participation trophies I used to get in, in like Little League, you know? I think Dan Pfeiffer called it a, a fascism participation trophy <laughs> yeah, on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's about very... Right. Very, very funny. Um, uh, we have a lot going on. Today is actually the hardest time I've had in in well over a year in terms of like with you guys trying to think through like what makes it onto the show and what doesn't because there's so much going on. So where we all landed on the the, the pod save the world brain trust was we're going to talk about cyber attacks uh, on Iran and what it means for the nuclear negotiations. Some big news from Biden on Afghanistan, why progressives are pushing the Biden team to do more in Yemen, some scary tensions in Northern Ireland that's spilling out uh, into the media. We're going to talk about Tom Brady because I felt like it. Uh, Fake art, escalating tensions with Russia and China, Facebook, Mike Pompeo, the situation in Uganda, and why Japan is very excited about golf at the moment. And then, Ben, you did our interview today. You guys were raving about how good this one. Uh, Please tell everybody what they're going to hear. Yeah, everybody should definitely stick around to hear the interview with uh, Afwa Hirsch, who's a a British journalist and writer and commentator. Um, We talked about the recent report that found that there was no racism in Britain. That that Um, is unbelievable. Yeah. uh, They put that out. Afwa didn't agree with that. We talked about uh, Prince (laughs) Philip, British identity, wide-ranging, very fascinating conversation. And actually, there's an article up on Cricket.com by... Missing America alum Zarlash Halamzai also yes. about the British report. So we're we've got total coverage, multi-platform coverage of this uh, this outrageous report today. But Afwa is great. You should check it out. I, I, I there were like real time rave reviews coming in on our iMessage <laughs> uh, thread. So I, I cannot wait to hear this. Um, a couple quick housekeeping things. So if you can't get enough of hearing me uh, yap a couple times a week, I was on Rubicon this week with Brian Boitler talking about some of the many foreign policy challenges Biden is facing in the first 100 days. Rubicon is just, it's an awesome show. Brian's talking about all these like big ticket issues that are that are Biden trying to deal with quickly. So check it out and subscribe. And then, Ben, uh, just in time for summer, crooked.com, our, our store, is selling our first ever pool float. Yeah. <laughs> it just says... It just says vaccinated in lots of fun colors. So you can, you know, piss off that anti-vaxxer in your life. You can virtue signal yeah. in a new way. Uh, if you want to go to crooked.com slash store, you can get them before they're gone. So just a, an update for all the listeners. It's here. a great like post-Trump virtue signal. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And also, hey, it's doing your part to uh to get rid of this pandemic. So why don't we start with Iran? Uh because 
you know, last week, teams from the U.S. and Iran were engaged in these indirect talks about getting back into the 2015 uh, JCPOA or Iran nuclear deal. The talks were happening in, in Vienna. There are representatives from Russia, China, France, Germany, and the U.K. trying to sort of shepherd them along. And the readout from those talks was basically no big breakthrough, but pretty positive, right? So then things start to get a little dicey. First, there were these reports that Israel attacked an Iranian ship that was connected to the IRGC. Uh, then on Sunday, there was reportedly a major cyber attack on Iran's main nuclear facility at Natanz that may have damaged thousands of centrifuges that Iran uses to enrich nuclear materials. So the Iranians very quickly accused Israel uh, of orchestrating the attack. They said they did it to screw up the talks. Biden's Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is in Israel right now for meetings uh, and did a public event with Netanyahu on Monday. So today is Tuesday morning. Iran announced that they're going to begin enriching uranium to 60 percent purity. This enrichment talk could get a little wonky, but the thing listeners need to know is that 90 percent enriched uranium is considered weapons grade. So, Ben, you know, a lot of movement here. Two questions for you. First, I mean, it does seem pretty likely to me that this cyber attack was timed to happen during these talks, but you tell me if, if you agree or disagree. And then second, what do you make of, of Secretary Austin having these very public meetings with Bibi Netanyahu in Israel in the wake of a cyber attack that everyone thinks Israel did, that seemingly Israeli officials are, are, are taking credit for in the press? I mean, doesn't that kind of make it a little harder for us to engage diplomatically yeah. if this, this stuff's happening? You think? Um, yeah, I, I and first of all, the Israelis have not been, I mean, I think we should more than assume Israel did this. They've been doing all the wink, wink kind of confirmations yep. uh, on background and then saying very kind of opaque, tough things in public. And look, uh, this is a big deal to, to launch a cyber attack at Natanz. First of all, the Iranian response is a significant escalation, you know, so they've not done this before. They've not enriched up to 60% before. So this is a significant ratcheting up of their nuclear escalation. I've seen some of the dead end maximum pressure guys online mm -hmm. saying, well, the Iranians would have done that anyway. Well, well, they haven't done it before. So right. um, I, like uh, y there's a cost to this tit for tat escalation. Then on, on the timing, I mean, there's so many overlapping things that make the timing problematic. First, you've had the very high-profile launch of these discussions in Vienna that, by all accounts, went well. Second, mm -hmm. you had Lloyd Austin in Israel, right? And so putting him in a really impossible position, because the question is, did the U.S. know about this in advance? You'd you have to think we didn't. Right. So did they just spring this on him? Like, oh, hey, welcome to Israel. We just launched a cyber attack on Natanz. And then third, you have you know Israel in its own unsettled political environment because they had an election, not sure who's going to form the next government. And, you know, perhaps this is Netanyahu kind of fluxing in a space that he likes to go to when he's in political danger. So, uh, like, of course, this makes things more complicated. And and people should know, like, uh, sure, this will set back their Natanz facility, but by like a, a period of months. And meanwhile, if Iran comes back enriching at a higher level, they will have more than made up for the fact that this cyber attack set them back a little bit. And and so the whole reason to have a diplomatic deal in the first place is, you know, with these kinds of attacks, you can periodically set back the clock at one Iranian facility or another. But because the Iranians know how to do this, they know how to enrich uranium, th they can just set that up somewhere else, you know? Um, yeah. So it's not, I think it's important to make the argument that 
that you know this is we want to solve the problem. We don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon, and, and that this is not the way to do it. And, and I think that given that Biden has signaled he wants to come back into the deal for Israel to kind of be taking an action that clearly would suggest you know that will be harder. Uh, you know that that's laying down a, a marker. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you know you sort of preempted my follow up question, which is I bet there are listeners who are who are sitting here listening to us thinking like, hey, isn't it a good thing that uh, that Iran's centrifuges yeah. are broken, right? Like, didn't we read news reports about the Obama administration maybe doing similar stuff? Like, wh- wh- what would you say to them about why, you know, a, a cyber attack isn't the path forward here and instead it is these negotiations? Well, because at the end of the day, like we we looked at this hard in, in the Obama years. How I truly believe, I mean, and this is the, the thing about the opponents of the Iran deal act like somehow we... We're on Iran's side in this. Like, no, I I want Iran to not have a nuclear weapon for a million reasons. And what are the ways of doing that? Okay, one is these kind of cyber attacks that can target very specifically a certain facility, crash some centrifuges, set the back. Iran has more than one facility where they enrich uranium, where they can operate centrifuges, and, and also over time, you know, this incentivizes them to build secret facilities. Um, so you can't solve the problem through cyber attacks. The same thing is also true with military attacks. Our military assessed that even if, you know, you just bombed the heck out of their nuclear facilities, you'd set back their clock basically a year because, you know, then they just need to rebuild their nuclear facilities and plug in the centrifuges again. And if they go, you know, all out to try to dash to a weapon, they can do that quickly. So that leaves a diplomatic deal that essentially puts in place an entire infrastructure of inspections and monitoring regimes where mm-hmm. you're verifying that Iran is taking several steps backwards in terms of, you know, they were shipping all their stockpile out of the country. They were only they were not enriching anywhere near to 60 percent. They were submitting to these types of inspections. That's just a more durable way to solve this problem. You know, I think yeah. some people would also say, well, you know, doesn't this help in the negotiation? Like you set them back and they may be hungrier for a deal. Like, I just don't think that's the way you get something done. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think the Iranians are more likely to escalate in response to this action and then feel like they're trading down from a higher position uh, themselves. So, you know, a lot of uncertainties here, but this is just not the way I'd want to design the diplomacy uh, that it was trying to get back into the nuclear deal. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Iranians historically have responded and escalated to attacks on them that they perceive. Also, historically, like the the most durable uh, efforts to denuclearize a country have been when those countries choose to do so. Otherwise, they can just figure out a way to try it over again. And one other thing, Tommy, like on the Obama thing, because I I, and we can't talk about obviously specifics of you know stuff that was sensitive at the time. What I will say is. I don't think that's the way to solve the problem, right? So I would not support that. Um, But also, there was no existing nuclear deal at that time. You know, like there is an existing joint comprehensive plan of action, JCPOA, that they're just trying to return to. In 2009, 10, like we were nowhere near that. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, Let's slide over to, to Iran's neighbor for a bit. So on Tuesday... The Washington Post broke the news that President Biden plans to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, uh, 2021. That's the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Biden is expected to officially announce this news on Wednesday, April 14th, so the day this, this episode comes out. 
There is currently between 2,500 and 3,500 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and there's you know up to 7,000 international, mostly NATO troops. It sounds like Biden's team landed on this withdrawal date and this decision because they know they can't meet the May 1 U.S. troop withdrawal deadline that was negotiated by Trump. But these peace talks that they've been trying to push forward are, are still going nowhere. So they seem to think that by announcing the September 11th date, they can split the difference. They can delay the withdrawal, which at this point is probably logistically impossible, but not provoke the Taliban into resuming attacks on U.S. forces. Ben, I'm guessing that all these NATO forces will come out shortly after the U.S. forces do because they rely on us for a lot of logistical support. There was a line in this post story that said that you know some U.S. counterterrorism assets will be positioned outside of Afghanistan to remain capable of striking extremist groups in the country. I assume that's talking about some sort of drone base nearby. I don't know. So, Ben, I, I guess my reaction to this news is I am extremely worried about what happens after we withdraw, but that I think this is the right decision. Like, So I, you know, I'm worried the Taliban could gain territory. I worry about the stability of the Afghan government. But I've also seen no evidence that a continued U.S. presence will help solve those problems. And I've seen some people argue that the U.S. being there actually makes everything worse. Any thoughts from you on you know, this policy decision or the symbolism of trying to you know, tie this withdrawal deadline to the 20th anniversary of 9-11? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, people in you know, particular progressives should understand that this is like a really big and bold decision by Joe Biden. I mean, yes, Trump set this deadline, but you know, Trump set it like as he was walking out the door, um, mm-hmm. and you know, did not remove all troops. Um, and that's the huge step. The big step is to get to to zero troops. So this is not just an extension of Trump. Like Biden had to be the one to take that decision, and I'm certain that the military was cautioning against it. I'm certain that people were warning probably correctly, that there's all kinds of negative scenarios that could play out. There will clearly be criticism from you know, parts of the Washington establishment. Um, so this is a pretty big move by Biden. Um, and to me, it, it suggests that he's willing to go pretty far in challenging certain conventions to try to end these uh, post 9-11 wars. So that just, I think that needs to be fully understood and appreciated, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, wherever you come down on it, just that this was a big, big effing deal. Um, I think, look, I think, and and knowing their thinking, talking to some of them over the periods of time leading up to this, I I think that their basic judgment is, look, there is enormous risk leaving in the next few months. There's a risk of Taliban takeover of much of the country. There's a risk of a humanitarian backsliding, obviously. Um, but I think the the tragic conclusion that they reached, um, that I think is likely the right conclusion, is those risks would still be there six months from now, one year from now, two years from now, three years from now. They're frankly the same risks that I heard about when we had these debates at the end of the Obama administration. And I think the symbolism of 9-11 is them saying... You know, after 20 years of this, we have to to recognize that there's no perfect end to this. There's no way that we can exit Afghanistan without inviting a significant degree of risk. Um, mm-hmm. And and again, I think that's that's a that's a tough call to make. But if you want to end these wars, you're going to be confronted with those types of decisions. Um, yeah. And th- and the last thing I'd say is is the the Afghans that that worked with us, the Afghans who you know built civil society organizations or went back 
into government or women's rights groups, those are the people, right, that you worry about. And I think whatever we can do, obviously, we'll probably continue to pay, subsidize, essentially, the Afghan security forces with training and arms and uh, and financing. Uh, but I think whatever diplomatic efforts we can put into trying to protect the, the gains in certain areas like women's rights um, has got to be top priority. And, and, and in a way, your diplomacy has to, to only get more intense um, as you're leaving. You'll never fill the gap of having troops there. But at the end of the day, the critics of this decision have to, to face the question, well, what were 2,500 U.S. troops going to do anyway? I mean, how were they going to somehow tip the balance of of Afghan politics in a way that we've been unable to tip the balance of Afghan politics with even more troops in the past. And I think for Biden, I'm sure what they're also thinking is like, hey, look, we're, we're, we're trying to, to pass a multi-trillion dollar bill to, you know, rebuild America. Um, this message is, you know, we're winding down this war and we're, we're focusing on, uh, on obviously this massive domestic agenda they're pursuing. And, you know, I, I, you can see the salience of why they chose the 9-11 date for that. Yeah. yeah. You can also sort of say, look, look, bin Laden's gone. I mean, the threat from Al-Qaeda in that part of the world is lessened. So, you know, they're not saying mission accomplished. I don't think anyone will say that yeah. ever again in history. But certainly, like, 20 years into it, I, I think it's hard to figure out why exactly we're still there. I mean, r- related to, you know, the, the comments you just made about needing to help people in Afghanistan, especially those who have worked with us along the way, there's a related issue is refugees. Um, yeah. and, and I saw, you know, so in February, Biden announced he was going to raise the annual cap on refugee admissions to the U.S. to 125,000 for the fiscal year that starts on October 1st. That's up from a cap of 15,000 at the end of the Trump administration. But I, I saw this article about how activists are trying to figure out why Biden hasn't yet signed a presidential determination to make it official because without that official act, the old Trump policies are still in place. I guess it's been eight weeks since that announcement uh, and still there's no determination getting signed. Do you have any sense of what might be going on here? Like why announce a refugee increase but not sign the paperwork that kind of makes it happen? Yeah, I don't understand this one. And it's troubling because there have even been refugees who thought that they had kind of flights booked to the U.S. Um, turned away. So this, these are human beings caught up in this. Um, I, and if this is the, the lowest year of refugee intake, which it, if, if, if the current course continues, Joe Biden will take in less refugees than any, any, any president in recent memory. That's completely against the, the commitment that he made. I, I, I can only guess that you know, it takes time for them to kind of staff up the government and get their people mm-hmm. in place, and maybe that connects to this. But, but I think they need to accelerate this. And and I think yeah. on Afghanistan, um, look, I, I, I think that you know Afghans are probably frustrated, angry at the United States with good reason for the not just twenty but forty years of our interventions in their politics. And I'm not suggesting that that you know all the Afghans who are now in danger or have been frankly in danger a lot in recent years would choose to come to the United States. That said. I think the United States has a moral obligation to basically let in anybody that um, you know worked with us, that worked on behalf of the types of you know values that we were seeking to instill in Afghanistan. I, I look, don't get me wrong. I hope that that people stay and that that there's an, a, a pathway for those values to be protected in Afghanistan. I also just think that as in Iraq and other places, 
like we, we do have a, a, an extra obligation here to do our part. So there's this global issue with refugees. And then I think they should be looking specifically at, you know, what special programs can be put in place if Afghans are, are in danger, if the security situation deteriorates. Yeah, agreed. Um, the other area where you're starting to see a lot of frustration from progressives is Yemen. So, you know, the, the, the context is, you know, for the last six years, and we've talked about this several times, there's been this horrific war in Yemen. One side is led by the Saudis uh, and at times has been backed by the U.S. The other side is uh, a group called the Houthi rebels, which have who have received support from Iran. The results are this ongoing fighting and humanitarian disaster for the people of Yemen. The latest estimate from the U.N. is that 400,000 Yemeni children under five could die of starvation this year unless there is an urgent intervention. So in February, President Biden said that the U.S. would end all support for Saudi offensive operations in the war in Yemen. But now 41 progressive members of Congress are asking President Biden to clarify what exactly that means, right? Like they want to know what support has been cut off. And, you know, Ben, you and I had the same question when we talked about this for the first time. Um, Many of those same members of Congress also want the Biden team to pressure Saudi Arabia to stop blockading a key Yemeni port because that's preventing ships from delivering fuel. And without fuel, without oil and gas, cars can't transport food, hospitals can't run their equipment, right? It's just like a horrible situation. There was a powerful op-ed in the Washington Post last week uh, by a Yemeni-American woman named Imam Saleh, who's been on hunger strike since March 29th to protest the Saudi blockade and just generally raise awareness about the war. You know, Ben, the, the Biden team hadn't responded to that letter from these members of Congress yet. I think it had been you know, two or three weeks. Members are frustrated. Do you have a sense of what's going on here? I mean, how much leverage do you think the White House has when it comes to trying to force the Saudis to end this blockade? And why not just like more clearly lay out like this is what stopped when it comes to military support and this is what's still ongoing? Yeah, I, I think they have a lot of leverage because, again, I think the, the Saudis cannot conduct a lot of basic military actions without some U.S. support. Um, and the Saudis obviously are a huge purchaser of American arms. So I don't know why you couldn't just say, like, we're, you're cut off unless you stop this. You know, I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, and I don't know why not to do that, because as you point out, you know, th- there are people who are dying right now because of the lack of humanitarian access. There's, you know, famine risk constantly in Yemen. Um, and so every day that goes on that, you know, some military objective of the Saudis with this blockade is, is clearly not being met. Uh do whatever you can to just put this to an end. To Because even as there may be com- complexities in negotiating some political settlement in Yemen, the starting point should be humanitarian assistance getting into the country. That's the kind of thing that everybody should be able to get on board with and agree with. And again, I mean, part of what I I can only guess at is they're, they're, they're staffing up. <laughs> I mean, I, I think people don't fully appreciate the extent to which very few Biden political appointees are in place. Now that yeah, said, you have the State Department, the Defense Department. You you can you can still govern effectively, but but this this too feels like they made a you know pretty a big commitment, and and they need to catch up to it. Yeah, and I, and I would imagine that a lot of the pressure on Mohammed bin Salman is, is better presented to him behind the scenes through direct channels versus you know publicly airing it out in the press. I mean, I'm guessing, but he seems like kind of a, a dug in guy. I wouldn't mind publicly airing it, though. You know, I, I wouldn't mind it either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, let, let's let's air some Saudi grievances yeah. while we're here, shall we? So this is my my favorite story I read in the news uh, this week. So 
Apparently, a documentary is going to air on French TV, like I think this week or next week, called uh, The Savior for Sale, that alleges that a painting called uh, The Salvator Mundi, or Savior of the World, by Leonardo da Vinci, that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman purchased for $450 million hmm. in 2017. Apparently, it's a fake. I, ben, I didn't realize there's fewer than 20 da Vinci paintings in existence, um, and that when this one was auctioned, Christie's called it the greatest artistic rediscovery of the last 100 years. Maybe not. Mm, maybe but not. then some experts at the Louvre did an analysis on the painting, and they determined that it was produced in da Vinci's workshop and then maybe touched up by him, but not produced by da Vinci himself. They think it was you know, one of his sort of close assistants. Um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, has reportedly been keeping the painting on his 440-foot mega yacht, as one does, because we know that seawater is good for priceless works of art. Um, apparently, this documentary says that MBS tried to pressure the Louvre into saying the painting was authentic so that he wouldn't be humiliated by the fact that he bought this fraud. Uh, the Louvre refused. This has created tensions between Saudi Arabia and France. So I'm not pro-art fraud, but you know, this couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I don't know. Every now and then, a little art fraud is, is not a bad thing. I mean, this would make a great movie or like, or yeah. like TV series or something. I, I mean- there's so many things about this. Just the fact that that someone would buy a four hundred fifty million dollar uh, painting suggests that there's something wrong with the the global economy and yeah. inequalities. Paging Elizabeth I, Warren, yeah, exactly. Where's the wealth tax on MBS here? Um, the 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 kind of vanity of both buying that painting and putting it on a yacht and then trying to squash the Louvre, telling people who actually painted it. Um, but I, I think the only other thing I'd, I'd point to is that, you know, addition to everything else, MBS has tried to cultivate. You know, particularly domestically, but also to foreign audiences, like a bit of a veneer of confidence and capability and competence. And you know, <laughs> this clearly undercuts that. You know, like like buying a four hundred fifty million dollar fake painting, like isn't exactly in line with the idea that that no. you're the modernizer who's going to bring this reform that's going to you know let a thousand flowers bloom uh, in Saudi Arabia. So. Yeah, you can see why this is kind of a risky thing for him. Um, but to me, it just highlights the absurdity of any system that facilitates a man buying a $450 million fake painting. You might as well buy like uh, some NFT and like some video of LeBron dunking and you know declare that it's somehow authentic. To, to your point about um, this would make a great TV show, have you seen – there's two Netflix series that are sort of about art fraud or art heist right now. One is called Made You Look. That's about someone making fraudulent art and like selling fake Rothko's and stuff into the market. And then there's another series that just came out called This Is a Robbery, which is about the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, oh, yeah. uh, which is fantastic because, you know, it took place in, in Boston in the 90s. The accents are unbelievable. The various like mob ties and speculation is great. It's just like a great, great unsolved mystery. I, mean, I highly recommend it. Boston accents mixed with art theft is right up your alley. Yeah, for me, like right, those are all my all my yeah, Russian yeah, zones. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll talk to uh, Boston East. We'll talk about Northern Ireland. So for for a little over a that's week, that's a great transition. Uh, that's the best transition we've had in, in weeks. Thank you. I, I guess uh, I guess Boston would be Ireland West, but you know who's yes. counting. So. Uh, serious voice now. There's been nightly rioting and violence in Northern Ireland that has led to, I think, dozens of arrests, uh, injured dozens of police officers. And it's created concern that the 23-year-old Good Friday Agreement, which ended decades of fighting in Northern Ireland, could be you know, unraveling a little bit. So I'll try to explain some of the reasons why, and, and we can see if we can figure this out. 
The first is Brexit. So the unionists, the, the mostly Protestant part of Northern Ireland's population that wants to remain part of Britain, they feel abandoned by Brexit. They feel like insecure about their place in the UK and angry about new border checkpoints. So listeners need to remember that Post-Brexit, Ireland remains part of the European Union, but Northern Ireland is part of the UK, which is no longer part of the EU, right? So once Brexit happened, both sides had to figure out how to create some sort of semblance of a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, when in fact one doesn't exist. You can just like hop up one side of the road to the other and you're in the other country. So that the approach they ended up taking has created uh, supply disruptions, shortages of goods in Northern Ireland, and you know things that could you could understand why they would piss people off. Um, the other piece of the puzzle here seems to be COVID. So in June of last year, police in Northern Ireland allowed about two thousand people to attend a funeral of a former top IRA official. The IRA, for folks who don't know, is a paramilitary group that fought for full Irish independence from Britain. So attendees at this funeral included members of Sinn Féin, which is a political party that represents the Catholics, and at one time was seen as the political wing of the IRA. So obviously a huge funeral in the middle of COVID broke the rules, but the police decided not to prosecute anyone, which when that news came out last week, led to unionists feeling like, okay, there's one set of rules for the Catholics and, and Sinn Féin, and there's another set of rules for Protestant unionists. Um, that seems to have been enough to disrupt this fragile peace agreement. And it led to like a bus getting hijacked, a journalist getting beaten up, Molotov cocktails getting thrown, like general mayhem. So we've got Boris Johnson has condemned the violence. So did leaders in Northern Ireland. But since the violence has mostly been from Protestant communities, and there's concern about essentially retaliation from Catholic communities. So then just a couple thoughts I had as I dug into this. One, the Brexit part of this is not only predictable, but predicted. It's just so frustrating to see it play out. Two, more and more, I'm worried that that COVID is going to have like unforeseen harmful geopolitical impacts uh, in ways that we will never see coming and we'll have a tail that will be nearly as long as the financial crisis. And this could be an yeah. example. Yep. And then three, this is just like a random aside, but you know, when you read about the troubles and you hear about them described, or do you hear about like Sunni Shia attentions? It's always described as sectarian in nature, but it really, when you dig into it, this is really about power. It's not about religion. And I think maybe calling it sectarian can sort of mislead us and, you know, could be besides the point. Anyway, that's the background. Uh, what do you make of what we've been watching here and how confident are you that Boris Johnson is the man to, to solve it? <laughs> Well, I, I look, I, I think a lot of this is rooted in Brexit, right? Because essentially, as you described, because they didn't put the hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, they basically have a customs border between Britain and Northern Ireland. And that's making a lot of people uncomfortable. And it's probably making the unionists feel pretty insecure, you know? And so then any additional event is, is on top of uh, uh, that insecurity. Um, and, you know, at the same time, and you'll hear this, um, conversation with uh, Afwa in the interview, we talk about the fact that the, the Brexit drive was overwhelmingly English, right? And, and so keep in mind, right, that even Britain is England, Scotland, Wales, and then Northern Ireland makes the rest of the United Kingdom. And, and the, the, this British nationalism that we've seen is really largely like an English nationalism. Um, oh, yeah. And and so if, if you're Northern Ireland, you're, you're seeing less and less of yourself, you know, in the politics of the country, particularly post-Brexit, even if you're, you know, a, a Protestant and a unionist, you're, you're, again, still feeling a little uncertain. So 
I, I hope that what what the baseline can be is can 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 a full court press be brought to bear by community leaders and by partners like the United States who are involved in the Good Friday agreements and hopefully by Boris Johnson's government and other p- political parties and movements in the UK to just not go back to violence here. Like there, there are some hard issues that have to be worked out uh, around border and the relationship between Ireland and Northern Ireland in a post-Brexit world. But but you really hate to see it you know, devolve in any way, shape or form to violence because once there starts to be that kind of reciprocal violence, it's hard to get that back under control. Um, yep. and, 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 and so, you know, I, I just hope people kind of take a step back from, from the brink here. Um, but at the same time, like this, there's a long-term question that still has to be answered in Northern Ireland about the future politics of the country, but let's, let's do it peacefully. Yeah, man. And also, you know, like Northern Ireland is not a huge population, but I, you know, we're talking about like, I think 3000, maybe 3,600 people were killed in this violence. I mean, it was really pretty horrific, but yeah, to your broader point, I mean, God, leaders like like Boris Johnson or Bibi Netanyahu, who just like punt hard problems down the road for for short term, you know, political fixes. I mean, they just drive me crazy. Here we are, and it shows you that there there's there's always secondary effects to this kind of nationalism. You know, like mm-hmm. if yes. your politics is dependent upon a kind of exclusionary form of nationalism, yep. Like you, you, I'm sure Boris Johnson and the Brexit people didn't think that this was part of what they were doing, but it was part of what they were doing because they kind of blew up this delicate, you know, but successful peace effort um, that was, you know, significantly helped by the fact that Britain was in the EU. So it's it's yet another reason to, to, to bear in mind that nationalism may make for short-term political gain, but in the medium and long-term, it, it tends to cause uh, a lot more harm than good. Yeah, very well said. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Can we talk about football for a second? Uh, the American brand or the... Uh, the American you know, brand. Okay, good. I mean, it's a world though vibe on this podcast. You're right. But, uh, you're yeah, right. Yeah. American football. Now, yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that no one has any sympathy for for New England Patriots fans, especially no. uh, a Jets a Jet fan, fan like yourself. Yes. But it, it's been a rough week slash couple of years for us, Ben, because on Monday, Julian Edelman, star wide receiver, announced yeah. his retirement. Before that, we had to watch Tom Brady and Gronk win a Super Bowl in Tampa, yeah. of all places. So, you know, even though Tom abandoned me, uh, and had that weird MAGA dalliance, which I did not love. I-, I still have some love for the guy, right? Like, I grew up with him. I rooted for him for decades. But that was why. 
that residual love is why last week I was confused and upset when I looked at my Instagram <laughs> and I saw that Brady had posted this bizarre pro-cutter, the country in the Middle East, propaganda video on his account. And so I tried to figure out why. Uh, this appears to be Brady's second trip to Qatar. Each trip has included some work for a nonprofit called Best Buddies, which helps people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Now, that is unequivocally, without question, a great cause and good for Tom for supporting the organization. I'm sure his visit probably came with, you know, Cutter cutting a big old check for Best Buddies, right? But it was also a family vacation that they thoroughly documented on social media in ways that promoted Cutter's image. And I would be willing to bet, Ben, that from private jet to hotel to food, it was all expenses paid. I'm guessing here, but that's I think it's an educated guess. Now, the reason Cutter would want someone like Tom Brady or Giselle to visit is to burnish their image ahead of the 2022 World Cup and to deflect from the fact that Cutter's workforce is mostly foreign and that those workers are often subjected to slave labor-like conditions and that many workers have already died building structures for this World Cup in 2022. This also reminded me when Saudi Arabia paid a bunch of Instagram influencers to come visit them and gave them lavish vacations in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi's murder. But I mean, I guess, you know, the point for Tom and Giselle is don't let rich autocrats uh, uh, use you. And at a minimum, like, I don't know, Ben, maybe educate yourself a bit before posting like literal propaganda videos on the Instagram account. I don't know. The Patriots are going to suck this season. So I don't even know why I brought this up. I don't know. Well, as someone who's been resentful of, of Tom Brady for a long time, like, it, you know, this was a little less upsetting to me. Um, but I have some Qatari friends like, um, but this is like a, a country with like a few hundred thousand citizens and like two million expat workers or something like of all the places you would go in the world to do your charitable work. Like, I, I don't know, the cutter would be like at the top of my list. And and yeah, like you can't help but look at that and just know that there was some price tag behind it. Um, uh-huh. You know, Tom Brady, I mean, again, people, they're, they're wonderful things, I'm sure, to do in, in Qatar. But I mean, the guy could go anywhere. He, you know, this guy. Uh, they're so, that, so rich. I think Giselle's more rich than he is, probably. Yeah. And so the, the idea that, that there wasn't some financial component to this trip, it, it, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't imagine that, that, that that's the choice he made. And it's just kind of gross, right? Because it, it, like, it, it, there's no problem in going and, but, but like there's there's a subtle politics to the message, right? Like in reading it, like the, the, uh, countries that are dealing with like human rights challenges, like the treatment of these foreign workers who are like building stadiums at slave labor at times. Um, like there's a subtlety to like having a huge influencer come and just talk about how wonderful everything is. And I've seen this in other countries. I've seen like, you know, uh, other influencers musicians, athletes do this, like, this is, it's a pretty interesting industry, you know, of like, mm-hmm. like, cause you get paid a lot of money. Um, whether it's like, you know, the, 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 the performers, you know, like singing at Gaddafi's parties, right. Uh, I used to read right. about that or right. whether it's like soccer players partying in Dubai and posting a lot of Instagram about it. I mean, or a point you've made or like four star U.S. generals paid to give a speech in some Gulf country. Well, so this is the thing, right? So this like on the one hand, it's like it's a free speech world in the sense of like if someone can get paid to go do something like that, like they can do that. But I think people don't realize how like relentless the machinery is, particularly in the Gulf of essentially rewarding people who say nice things about you. And that has a 
political purpose behind it. It's not to promote mm-hmm. tourism. It's to right. distort your human rights record and to get negative attention off of other things that are, that are happening in your country. And and that, to me, is where it obviously becomes problematic and more problematic yeah, when you're also influencing U.S. foreign policy. But Tom Brady's yes. not doing that. Thank God. Yeah. And it's just what you... <laughs> I'm sure he would say, "What you know? They were nice to me. I'm trying to further cultural ties. I get it, but I, he'd you know. say like they probably made a bunch of charitable donations. They were yes. probably nice people to him and his family. And why is it not their right to essentially have a PR campaign? Because like you could argue that yeah. America does its own versions of this too. There's just something kind of gross about the, this influencer space, um, particularly when you know it seems like the the purpose is to you know, like don't pay attention to the human rights concerns over here. Look at this beautiful Instagram. Yeah, just you know, pay your own way, and then maybe uh, post about the the cool camel ride, but also post about uh, concerns about the labor and environmental standards yeah. for workers building this you know 2022 World Cup facility. Yeah, seems like a simple answer here, especially when you're a hundred millionaire. Well, yeah, and which athletes, not Tom Brady, but like do in America too here. We're not suggesting like you only zero single out like Gulf monarchies for criticism, although there's plenty to criticize. But like Ameri- American athletes use their platform to spotlight injustice in this oh, country. Yeah. Like uh, like we, they should, there's no reason they shouldn't do that abroad too. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, Ben, so I, I combined two you know, major issues that have been on the back burner, but are starting to simmer a bit. These could have been our lead stories, but, you know, there's just so much going on. So the first is that there's this major buildup of Russian forces on the border of Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian officials say Russia has 41,000 troops at its border with eastern Ukraine and 42,000 more in Crimea, the Ukrainian territory that Russia invaded in 2014. It's a major buildup. Uh, it's a major topic at meetings happening, I think, today between the U.S. and NATO uh, in uh, NATO officials in Brussels. Um, Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, and the head of NATO called uh, Russia's actions provocative and they expressed support for Ukraine, but it's not entirely clear what that means. CNN reported that the U.S. is considering or has already sent uh, warships into the Black Sea to show support for Ukraine and to send a message to Russia. Earlier this morning, the Russians warned the U.S. to essentially butt out, don't send ships. So not great. The second big issue is China and Taiwan. Uh, Again, Tony Blinken over the weekend was on Meet the Press. Chuck Todd asked him if the U.S. was prepared uh, to defend Taiwan militarily from China because Tony is so new at this, he's going to take a a hypothetical question and declare war on the Chinese. So Tony expressed concern about these increasingly aggressive actions by China towards Taiwan he reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to make sure that Taiwan can defend itself and tried to warn China against using force. In response, on Monday, China sent 25 military aircraft into Taiwanese airspace. A lot of people viewed that as, you know, the, giving the middle finger to the U.S. and the international community. I think, you know, the truth is that China has been, I think, doing a lot of these kind of air incursions on a daily basis for the past several weeks. So, Ben, you know, I lump these together again because, you know, Getting drawn into a, a military conflict with Russia or China is really the the worst case scenario. I'm curious what you make of you know both of these these escalations. If there's one that worries you most, I mean, I guess you could probably argue that you know Russia and Ukraine never really stopped fighting after yeah. 2014, yeah. but you know it's still a big buildup. China's behavior is not new, right per se, but it's getting worse. But like, how do you rank these when you think about okay, you're in Biden's situation room. Like, these are two problems that are presented to you. Which one is uh, getting attention from you? I mean, look, I think that the Russia thing worries me a ton because, you know, the one thing we've learned the last decade, right, is don't assume Vladimir Putin won't do the worst thing that you think he might not do, right? I mean, he annexed Crimea 
invaded a part of eastern Ukraine. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can give you a lot of reasons why I think it'd be crazy for him to invade Ukraine with this mass force, but he may do it because he's Putin yeah. and and because he thinks he can get away with it because he thinks he would win that war and he'd, you know, dominate Ukraine and he'd further embarrass the West and, you know, wh- whatever his reasons are, like they're in line with the direction he's been going. I think the Taiwan thing, it feels like the Chinese obviously are absolutely committed to bringing Taiwan back into the fold, as it were, from their perspective. And Xi Jinping is like the kind of leader that wants to get that done, you know? Yeah. Um, you, just, you know, that's the, the, I've tried to think through this, like, why would they do this? The, the time seems to be on their side. But Xi Jinping just kind of seems like the kind of guy who, for history, wants like the big feather in his cap that he did this. Now, the flip side of that is Xi Jinping probably envisions being in power for like 20 more years. Um, That's true. So, so I see this. I, I don't see the Taiwan one as, as urgent, but I see it as a real issue that we're going to be spending a lot of time probably talking about in the coming years. I, I do think, Tommy, just stepping back when I, I saw this on the outline, you know, Russia massed on the border of Ukraine, saber rattling uh, in the Taiwan Straits, uh, the Iran issue with Israel hitting Natanz and the Iranians potentially ratcheting up the nuclear program and maybe the risk of an Israeli-Iranian conflict that we get drawn into. Like, those are three, like, real wars, you know? I mean, like, real conventional, you know, uh, not counterinsurgencies, you know, not uh, counterterrorism missions. And this bears watching. It makes you uncomfortable to see that many, you know, kind of fault lines where an earthquake could go off. And it does feel a little bit, I, I usually don't subscribe to the, like, they're testing the new president. It does feel a little bit, though, like, you know, Trump was such a shit show. The U.S. was perceived in decline. Biden comes in and he says, like, we're back, we're back, we're back. It does feel a bit like the Russians and the Chinese, the Ira- Iranians and the Israelis, uh, and the Israelis as our friends, I want to be very clear, as I separate them in terms of the the tight, they're not an adversary, but they're they're testing in their own way, um, mm-hmm. or, or, or you know that's part of what's happening here. And so, how Biden manages this, um, hopefully, obviously trying to avoid conflict, but also trying to avoid things like Russia invading Ukraine, is going to be a huge. Again, I hate to use the word test because it in the political press it, it makes it seem like no, the US I, I get it has all the power, but it's going to be something that they're going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about and working on. And it's not easy. Yeah. I, I I I don't envy them that task. No, I don't envy them either. Did you see? I think it was BuzzFeed. Also had an interesting piece about how far-right extremists in the U.S. are viewing the conflict in Ukraine as like essentially a a war zone where they can gain combat experience and, and, you know, fight with a bunch of neo-Nazi fascists and then bring that training back home to the U.S. So, you know, I'm glad that uh, the American Taliban has uh, a war zone to go to where they can, you know, figure some things out and come back here. That's that's great for all of us. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, Ukraine has become this kind of weird laboratory of international everything, you know, right wing, you know, neo-Nazis and oligarchs and and spies and Rudy Giuliani. You know, it's like, yeah, if I was Ukrainian, I'd just be like, can you all just get the fuck out of our country? You know, like, (laughs) just just get the hell out of here, man. Like, (laughs) just trying to be Ukrainian, you know? Yeah, it's just it's just a beautiful place. I just want to hang out in Kiev and and in Vienna. Uh, that's too bad. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Ukraine. Uh, Sorry, okay, Ukraine. a couple more things. 
uh, let's talk about Facebook for a minute. So there was a great investigation by The Guardian, uh, and they found that Facebook has repeatedly allowed world leaders and politicians to post misinformation or harass political opponents, even after that behavior was identified internally by Facebook. So basically, this, this report found that Facebook has gotten better about taking action when there's a likelihood of, you know, major media attention around some, you know, inauthentic activity, but it's happy to let things go in a small or non-Western country. So the Guardian's primary source was a, a former Facebook employee named Sophie Jang, who said that politicians at places like Honduras, Azerbaijan, the Philippines, Tunisia, many other countries are able to exploit a loophole that allows them to create fake pages and create fake engagement on posts that boost the government or they can attack their rivals. Uh, and look, you know, I, I think listeners to this show have probably heard us be pretty hard on Facebook at times, uh, you know, express our frustration with the various harms that have been caused by the platform. But even when I'm, I'm ranting about them, uh, I usually feel like, okay, I have some empathy for how difficult some of these challenges are, right? Like with a couple billion users. This doesn't feel like one of those cases because it seems like the, the company is making the choice not to ruffle feathers and say Albania or El Salvador or Poland because it's easier not to piss off the government without really pausing to think, okay, how does this broken political discourse harm the people living in those countries? And, you know, you look at some of those countries and they have really gotten pulled way to the far right. They're entering sort of fascist zone uh, and it really is pretty scary and sucks. So wanted to highlight that one. Yeah, I, I think what the reason it's worth highlighting and, and, and coming back to this is that it suggests that the the whole Facebook ethos and model is just to in in every way, shape, or form avoid pissing off like governments and powerful people, yes. <laughs> which is exactly. a complete recipe for your platform being totally manipulated by governments and powerful people for bad ends, and and very real human beings suffer the consequence. They suffer violence. They suffer corruption. This is real stuff. I mean, I remember when I was in, in reporting on a piece, you know, that I wrote on Burma. You know, I talked to a bunch of activists there, including people who were in the you know kind of tech sector there, and and you know I've talked about this before, but they said that Facebook had two employees in Singapore, like responsible for Burma, and mm -hmm. they only traveled there like a couple times a year. But the only reason they traveled there was to check in with the government just to make sure that the government wasn't upset with them. You know, it wasn't like they were traveling there to, to check in with civil society and like, right, or, right, you know, yeah. or, or are they ginning up hate campaigns? Like th their whole model is kind of keeping governments happy, powerful interests happy. And and there's this kind of self-censorship of of doing the right thing. And and again, if they were just refuse to do the right thing, they have to be regulated. You know, like that's that's when industries get regulated. If they are a threat to public health and safety in this country and, and around the world, you know they should have the opportunity to take corrective action themselves. But this story points that even when they have mechanisms that they could use, they choose not to use them. You know, and and mm -hmm. that's why I think the the conversation about regulation needs to continue here. Gotta happen. Gotta happen. Uh, let's turn to Uganda before we get some lighter items. So uh, in late February, uh, I interviewed a guy named Bobby Wine for the show. Bobby Wine's a musician turned opposition leader turned presidential candidate. We talked about how Uganda's current president, uh, President Museveni, has like rigged the last several elections. He's cracked down on dissent. Unfortunately, things have gotten even worse since that conversation. Bobby Wine is now essentially under house arrest. He says that over 600 of his supporters 
have been seized off the streets, arrested, in some cases tortured, in some cases murdered. Many of these individuals have been like just collecting evidence of vote rigging in the last election, or they were picked up for the crime of wearing a, a red hat that has been popular among Bobby Wine's supporters. So President Museveni, uh, he's really like a military dictator. He gave a speech recently where he acknowledged arresting 242 people and he acknowledged killing a few, but he said they were all terrorists. And, you know, it's like typical autocratic bullshit. But what really depressed me in reading about this, Ben, was there was some military spokesman who said, yeah, this is the same kind of policing that the U.S. and the U.K. have used, which, you know, our war on terror comes back to bite us over and over again. Um, Folks in the U.S., you know, we should care about this because, one, we care about human rights globally because the U.S. provides Uganda with about a billion dollars per year of assistance. And there's no doubt that that money is is helping fund this crackdown. So I guess I would just say to listeners, like, read up on this, uh, post about it on social media, like call your members of Congress, ask to, to them to speak up because, you know, Bobby was very explicit in our conversation that press attention, especially international press attention, helps him stay safe. So we're going to stay on this issue. Absolutely. And just bears repeating, like, it's easy to look at uh, Lukashenko in Belarus and be like, oh, Putin-backed dictator. Or it's easy to look at you know, any number of the autocrats that the Chinese support, you know, Hun Sen in Cambodia. Well, look at Egypt, look at Uganda. These are like among the very largest recipients of American assistance. And and I, I just think that has to change. Um, yes. Uh, but but for now, I think the best thing we can do is keep attention on this. Yeah. You, you have been very consistent on on the need to elevate human rights. And I think every day it is proven to be uh, uh, more true. So a couple lighter things before we get to your interview, Ben. Um, first of all, uh, the worst secretary of state in history, Mike Pompeo, has become a paid Fox News contributor. Big <laughs> news. Uh, what a shock. He's going to join Kaylee McEnany, Larry Kudlow, and Lara Trump in the stable of paid Trump administration hacks. One interesting twist on this, Ben. So failed Secretary Mike was supposed to speak at that GOP uh, fundraiser yeah. at Mar-a-Lago over the weekend where Trump got the little little silver dish, but he canceled it at the last minute. I saw some speculation in Huffington Post about whether Pompeo suddenly realized this created a, an ethics violation with Fox. I don't know. My guess is he doesn't care. No, Fox doesn't no. really care. But yeah. are you excited to see more of, of Mike on Fox? Uh, I mean, like, if I ever achieved the august heights of Secretary of State, um, I, I would hope that I've, I'd have something more to show for it than Mike Pompeo. And I'd hope I'd have mm-hmm. something else to do other than be a, a paid contributor to, to Fox. <laughs> I, I say that as a contributor to MSNBC. I know, but I was not the Secretary of State. I, I was not contemplating a run for the, the presidency of the United States. I mean, it just shows you that these people have nowhere to go. I mean, he literally has clearly has ambitions to be president of the United States of America. Yeah. Uh, and it's just it's so, so telling that like the, the thing you do in Republican politics is is go on like daytime Fox and like attack, you know, Joe Biden's Iran policy. I mean, it's it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. He's a troll. He's a troll. The other fun thing we saw was, you know, we here at, at Pod Save the World, we are suckers for a, a good old fashioned crazy propaganda video. Uh, and the president of Turkmenistan really delivered for us this week. Uh, why don't we roll that clip? So the president decided to go for a bike ride. For some reason, he was greeted by hundreds of people in matching track uniforms who were forced to either stand and clap for him in unison or sing songs for him. Uh, and then I guess just trail him on his ride. Uh, as exciting as that was, you know, I wouldn't recommend it to visit anytime soon. But I don't know, I mean, where, where does that rank for you when, it, you know, when you think about Turkmenistan propaganda versus North Korea? Do they have a little work to do still? 
Well, I mean, this is a, a country where the, the, the former dictator renamed the months of the year. Um, I think he named one <laughs> after his mother. Um, so I, I kind of got fascinated by this. And then my wife, Anne, went to Turkmenistan um, and said it was the strangest, I mean, beautiful place, very nice people. We should always be clear to separate the people from the oh, of course, yes, we're yes. talking about. But she said it was fucking weird. I mean, I they, 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 they built a giant Sofitel and nobody was in it. But the government basically paid to have a Sofitel so that like if five people needed rooms, they, they wanted to have a luxury hotel. You know, it was that kind of thing. Um, I mean, it was just kind of weird, gaudy stuff. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, they're, they're, you know, keep an eye on Turkmenistan if you, if you indulge in, uh, you know, uh, propaganda <laughs> absurdities, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, uh, some fun news for Japan. So on Sunday, a guy named Hideki Matsuyama became the first Japanese man to win a major golf tournament when he won the 85th Masters Tournament. Uh, Matsuyama is a 29-year-old uh, guy. He's now ranked 14th in the world. This is a huge deal for Japan where golf is yeah. very popular and success in sports is like, like celebrated by the culture. Um so I've been reading a bunch of pro profiles of Matsuyama. He sounds like an interesting person, but he's very shy. Uh, a recent profile of him noted that he seems to have no hobbies or interest in acquiring them, which was funny to me. And then in 2017, <laughs> <laughs> he surprised the press by announcing that he and his wife had had a kid when most of the reporters in the room didn't even know he was married. I guess uh, <laughs> Shinzo Abe made uh, Matsuyama play golf with Abe and Trump when Trump visited Japan oh. in 2017. I know, I know. I hope the impending media attention like isn't too too overwhelming for him uh, because the Japanese press is super intense. But I'm very happy for the for the Japanese people. I think it's awesome. I love the Japanese people so much, and I I remember fondly like you know as a Met fan, um, we we signed Hideo Nomo. Um, remember the pitcher oh, yeah. uh, who had first success with the Dodgers. And man, like I went to games and like the Japanese American community like came out of the woodwork. And then there were like the, the, the press coverage of Nomo's games in Japan. You would look up at the press box and there'd be all this like Japanese press up there, like furiously covering some like May day game that the Mets are in. And they're like the worst team probably in the NL East. They opened a bureau in Seattle when Ichiro was there. Yeah, the entire bureau. I, I love it. I have <laughs> so much respect for it. Like one of their guys or women now, Naomi Osaka is obviously dominating. Yeah, Naomi Osaka is awesome. Tennis, like, like I love how they just get behind it. I like, I, I it's cool yeah. to watch. I, like sports nationalism is the best nationalism. It's, it's good nationalism. Fun. Yes, let's, let's all just, be. Let's, yeah, let's, let's channel it there. Right, furious uh, sports nationalists. God, yeah, I, I'm excited about the Olympics. I know that they're. Whatever the, the ones in Japan are pretty cool, and there's questions about whether Matsuyama might actually be like uh, the guy who lights the torch because he's like oh. a, a huge hero now. So that's very very cool. Um, cool. Last thing before we go to the interview, uh, I have a, a quick recommendation for the world. Those uh, I was watching a show on HBO Max the other day called Exterminate All the Brutes. It's by a director named Raoul Peck, and what it seems to be, I'm only one episode in, is kind of like a, a, a retelling of you know, like fairly recent, like five, 600 years history um, that isn't just told through the perspective of the winners, through the colonizers, uh, through, you know, the people who end up in charge and is trying to sort of understand what it was like to be a Native American in, in the U.S. or uh, a, an innocent person living in the Congo when the Belgians showed up. Um, it twists and turns and it's this like winding, fascinating history that was very cool. I'll check it out. That sounds good to me. Um, it's actually not a bad segue into the interview, too, given how yeah. we talk about history and uh, history of empire. 
you know, so once again, your, your transition game is good today. You know, I'm working on it. So well, when we come back, we'll have Ben's interview with Afua Hirsch. So stick around for that. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. I'm really pleased to be joined by Afa Hirsch, who is a journalist, a columnist for The Guardian, and a professor of journalism at the University of Southern California, where we will be welcoming her. And she's also the author of Brit-ish, which is the best use of parentheses in a book title. Um, but people should check <laughs> this you. out. It's British on race, identity, and belonging. Afa, thanks for, for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I want to begin with this report that came out uh, recently. We talked a little bit about it uh, on, on this podcast. But uh, basically, Boris Johnson's government released a Sewell report on racism in the UK that basically determined that the UK is not structurally racist and in fact, can be a model for other countries. Um, so obviously, this has drawn a lot of criticism, but but the Boris Johnson government and the authors of the report have really, you know, kind of doubled down in its defense. Just to start here, uh, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, just given that we have a large American audience too, like what 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 is this report and how could it, how could, how could something that is so kind of obviously wrong have such like a high level imprimatur you know so this government which is really well known for its hostility to anti-racism and i know ben you will have had some personal experience of this because the prime minister boris johnson was formerly the foreign secretary and barack obama was just one of many victims of his casual yeah. racism when he said that he was anti the british empire because he was he was kenyan yeah and it's that kind of like normalizing of the idea that you can other people of color that you make their nationality whether they're american or british conditional on their good behavior on them agreeing with your terms as a a, a government that really perpetrates very problematic ideas so that's the history boris johnson made talked about Piccaninis with watermelon smiles as foreign secretary, whose job was to conduct diplomacy with African countries. It was really extreme. So now he's the prime minister and he's become prime minister at a time when among all the other kind of existential events we've been facing as a nation in Britain with Brexit and coronavirus, there's also been obviously this shift in the mood around understanding racism, a sense of urgency on needing to tackle racism. And that created a real problem for the British government because they have have a long history of not wanting to tackle or even acknowledge it exists. So they conveniently put together a committee of people who have an equally long track record of denying the existence of racism yeah. and gave them a mandate to investigate whether structural racism exists. And hey, presto, their report delivered several months <laughs> yeah. later says, don't worry, we, we have the solution to the problem of racism. 
it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Therefore, yeah. we don't have to fix it. And it's it would be ludicrous if it wasn't so serious. And, you know, the, the commissioners they appointed is actually a really interesting story because they then had to find people who appear to be members of these communities to give it the appearance of credibility to lead this commission. So they went around looking for Black and Asian people who were also known for denying the existence of racism. One of the commissioners, Tony Sewell, uh, was a journalist at The Voice newspaper, which is Britain's oldest black newspaper, which is where I started my career in journalism as a teenager. So I've known him since I was 14 years old, and that's quite a long time ago. I know you wouldn't be able to tell then, but it's several decades ago. (laughs) And he has had a reputation, I would almost say a notoriety for being the kind of token black person who internalizes racist tropes for all of that Mm. time. So the idea that he was led to chair this committee, that other people who either have a track record of uh, denying the existence of racism or just have no background in understanding racism, you know, a space scientist, people who may be very respected in their fields, but are known for looking at outer space for reason. It's quite different from having an authoritative grasp on what can be quite complex ideas about structural and systematic racism on earth. So that's the report that we've got. It says that structural racism doesn't exist. It includes treasures such as the paragraph describing the upside of slavery, which concludes that, you know, even though there were some negative aspects of the slavery Britain perpetrated against several million Africans, The good thing was that those who were trafficked to the Caribbean became more British, and that really was a benefit. So it has no credibility. And one by one, academics associated with it, experts who were uh, alleged to have contributed to it, have distanced themselves from it. And I do think it's going to backfire on the government because it really is so lacking legitimacy. But at the same time, I don't think we can be dismissive of it because it's a very cynical attempt to really hijack the question of diversity, of progress towards racial equality and the conservative party positioning themselves as the party that says there's a binary either you accept racism exists and that means you have a victim mentality and you're not interested in progress or you believe in your capacity to achieve progress and change and the 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 condition of that is that you deny that structural racism exists there is no middle ground it's one or the other and here we are presenting you with an opportunity to deny racism but see yourself having potential to uh succeed in britain become more british and it's it, it i think it's an attempt to say to people who are sick of talking about racism you know all yeah. black british people we're sick of it i'm only ever called by the bbc when they want a debate about whether racism exists anymore. And the yeah. idea that I would spend my productive hours in quotes debate with a racist, trying to persuade them yeah. to recognize my humanity is exactly the frustration I feel at even being asked to do that, I think is where a lot of black British people are. So of course it's a nice idea that we could just say racism is done and this is a meritocracy now, but it's ludicrous and you don't solve a problem by pretending yeah. it doesn't exist. And I think that there, there is enough of a critical mass of the electorate that know that now, that this will not work. And that is my hope. I mean, when I look at that and then I look at the recent, you know, efforts around, you know, the, the anti-protest laws um, and, and even the way that the debate over things like statues played out, it feels like the Boris Johnson government, though, is, is more than happy politically to divide and... Um, and kind of provoke, you know, uh, there, there's almost provocation in this, the extreme 
nonsense of this report. Obviously, the you know the the restrictions on protest cut at like a core principle of democracy. Um, it, it 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 feels like the government is is you know un, not unlike the Republican Party here in the United States, um, finding that this is the the political ground they do want to fight on. Is that is that a fair impression? It is a fair impression. I think there's also been quite a calculated strategy in which our political leaders and actually of several parties have concluded that the electorate has a number of racist ideas and that you can only become electorally successful by either appealing directly to those ideas or avoiding countering them. And, you know, one of my biggest disappointments, to be very honest with you, is that the main opposition party, the Labour Party, uh, which has many MPs with an incredible track record of standing up for these principles of equality, the right to protest, is being led by somebody who hasn't had the courage of his convictions to take a firm stance. And I think I'm talking Keir Starmer, yeah. who's the Labour leader, who I know personally because um, I used to be a barrister, a barrister at his chambers yeah. and work closely with him. And he's incredibly committed to human rights and has a, a, a remarkable has had a remarkable career of championing fundamental rights and protections. But I think that there is this, I believe, mistaken perception that in order to capture the mainstream vote, you can't appear to be taking a stand for these rights. And that really concerns me because, you know, as a a progressive voter, as a black woman who is completely committed to equality and anti-racism, I feel very politically homeless at the moment. And I think many British people share this sentiment right now. And it seems as, you know, as current events remind us on a more and more regular basis how pervasive these problems are, it seems that we have less leadership to look to to offer us a way through them and that is just a very disheartening experience right now and you know it feels a lot like what you've been going through in the US yeah but it's difficult to see a way out for us and that's because some of these are really long-term structural questions you know leaving the EU which I think many of us it's not so much that we're so uh, passionately committed to being European or even being part of the European Union it's the terms on which we left the rhetoric surrounding our decision to leave, this incredibly nativist, far-right ideology, that nothing good can come of it. And it's also the long-term, I believe, structural decline of a nation whose whole sense of self-confidence and importance in the world is based on having had an empire, which it no longer has. Unless Britain finds an alternative to its core identity that's not based on colonial exploitation, this long-term sense of decline will continue to corrupt and toxify our politics. And that is my real concern. I haven't seen anyone with the courage to really challenge that and move it in a, in a fundamentally new direction. Well, I, this is something I really wanted to talk to you about. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I have a whole book coming out about the problems with American identity to some extent. So I, <laughs> I'm in, I know I'm in a glass house, but when I look at, at Britain, um, I do wonder, you know, so this question of national identity uh, post-Brexit in the sense that you had an empire and then you had this kind of heroic struggle in World War II, um, and then you had this kind of Cold War identity that we all kind of shared, right? We were on one side of the Cold War. Um, But Britain now feels like a a country that, you know, and Americans forget it's, it's, you know, it's not just England, (laughs) you know, it's England, Wales, Scotland, uh, you know, Northern Ireland. Um, the, the, you have a monarchy, which we'll we'll get to in a minute here, that is clearly not exactly got its finger on the pulse of the times. You've just left the European Union, kind of removing yourself from that identity. 
and and so these 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 debates that you've been provoking so wonderfully in recent years and um feel really important both in terms of the justice and equity that you're raising but but how would you define what what does it mean to be british um you know as an american i'd probably talk about our founding documents and our democracy which we haven't lived up to um but but what would you just how would you describe the uh, what a british identity is or and, and and how would you define the kind of contest that is happening around it these days yeah, it's always so interesting to compare Britain to the US in that respect. And we don't have a written constitution. We do have a constitution. That's something that's often misunderstood, but it's not written and especially not written in a single document. It's a number of documents, you know, the Act of Union with Scotland, the Human Rights Act, the Magna Carta, yeah. which dates back to the medieval period. So it's this kind of a hodgepodge of documents. And a lot of it is unwritten, these conventions, the, the conventions surrounding the role of the monarchy, a lot of very arcane norms and rituals that are just remembered and, and orally passed down. So it's much harder for ordinary people to grasp and understand. But I don't think that's the real problem with Britishness. It's interesting actually that through my research, I found that actually the idea of Britishness is quite an imperial construct because people who uh, are white British often don't identify as British. They identify more with their nation. So they're they're English, yeah. they're Welsh, they're Northern Irish. And if they're Northern Irish, there's a further breakdown as to whether they are Protestant or Catholic yeah. or they're Scottish. And these are all very distinct identities. And actually the people who were taught to feel British were people in the empire because that was the only place that Britishness actually meant something. So, you know, my mother, who was born in Ghana, which used to be the Gold Coast, a British colony, yeah. her first passport described her as a British protected person. So ironically, the real British people, I think, many of them are these uh, imperial citizens who came to the motherland, as they were yeah. told it was, with this idea of Britishness. And certainly during the Brexit referendum and the, the campaigning around leaving the European Union, I heard a lot of older, especially white voters saying, I'm not British, I'm English, you know, and, and anyone can be British. Any brown person can come here and get a British passport, but I'm we're the English, we're a yeah. tribe. It's almost yeah. like these are tribal identities associated with this imagined idea of the indigenous white, which is also a fallacy because there were Africans in England before there were English people in England. Yeah. The English are actually quite a recent immigrant group, uh, of Germanic origin, but that doesn't tend to go down very well with today's, <laughs> yeah. today, today's yeah. white population. So I think that there are some there are some real holes in the content of what Britishness means. And I don't think that's uh, necessarily a problem. We could be having a, a moment of renewal and really asking ourselves, what does it mean to be British? What is included in the content of, of this identity? What future do we imagine? But instead, I think we're defining it through exclusion, you know, through separation from Europe, through the alienation of people who are regarded as immigrants. And this is a real difference from America, I think, because America has a sense of itself as an immigrant nation, a nation of immigrants. Even though Britain is also a nation of immigrants, there's this created idea of indigeneity, which is also quite recent, created during the Victorian era to justify the empire. But people really believe it. And there's this sense of us and them, we're the indigenous and you are recent immigrants and you will never be truly of this island. And that is certainly something as a black British person growing up in this country all my life, my Britishness has often been treated as conditional. If I say things people don't like, they say, why don't you go back to where you come from? No, yeah. you know, and that's, it's actually interesting for me because that's something that's been said to me 
more times than I could count, you know, weekly on so TV and go, live go back debates. to Go back to the part of England that you're from. I yeah, well, I'm always like, you can buy my train fare, yeah, back to Wimbledon, which yeah, is exactly. where I'm from. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but it, it was only in the last year that all of these encounters with people like Piers Morgan and other uh, proponents of that view got recirculated on social media with them telling me to go back to where I came from. And suddenly there were petitions calling for them to be sacked from their jobs. And so for me, that that really revealed a shift that the thing that was normal that people said all the time to a black or brown British person. Now they still say it, yeah. but there is this groundswell of discontent that that is not an acceptable thing to say. But I think, you know, as long as we don't come up with an idea of Britishness that allows British people to feel included, it's not going to be sustainable. How can we compete with the great nations of the world for whom diversity is at the core of their competitive advantage yeah. if we exclude and alienate all of the people who came to Britain because they believed in Britain, you know, they were conditioned in the era of empire to look up to Britain. So no matter how problematic that ideology is, the reality is it exists. Many of us, and I include myself, had parents who were incredibly patriotic towards Britain, were, were educated to look up to British culture. And it was a huge shock to them to come to Britain and realize that British people were hostile to them and actually had complete ignorance about them. And because we are second and third generation descendants of them, we are still regarded with the same suspicion and hostility which no matter whether you're born in Britain, no matter how many generations you are, you're still asked where you're from. And if you say something that people don't want to hear, they tell you to go back there. And I wonder, you know, uh, we all saw the, the, you know, Prince Philip story play out this week. And, you know, I know the BBC canceled all of their programming. Um, and and I, I was just kind of wondering, knowing you and, and having a lot of friends, um, you know, uh, who are... Uh, people of color in, in Britain. Uh, what is it like, you know, you have someone like Prince Philip who on the one hand is, is you know, part of this institution that is in everybody's life and is something that everybody shares in common who is British. And there's something wonderful about that in a way, even though it's deeply strange too. Um, but at the same time, he's you know, a symbol of the empire and of, you know, putting aside even his own person, like that's tied to histories of subjugation. And then you add on, you know, he, this is not a guy that was you know, on the anti-racism train. <laughs> but, um, so what is it like to, to, to participate in that kind of national mourning of a figure, you know, who is your uh, Duke of, you know, Edinburgh, but, but is also, you know, comes with a lot of baggage. I mean, this for me is the real missed opportunity for the Royal family because all my life, and it's true, there's this cognitive dissonance. You grow up with these people, they're part of your identity. As a British person, they're omnipresent. You know, it's difficult to communicate if you don't live here day in, day out, how much a part of daily life the royals are. They constantly dominate the, the media. And you feel a connection to that because it's what you're used to. But because they have always represented the idea of white supremacy in a very visceral way, you know, throughout my life, they weren't seen to be socializing with, marrying, having children with anyone who was not white. They may have had black servants, but they weren't. Yeah socializing or mixing with people who looked like me, who had names like me. And I think many white British people had this nostalgic relationship with them, a kind of wishing we could go back to the days when everyone in Britain looks like them or had their heritage, never mind that they're a, a very diverse group of uh, Europeans within their ancestry with yeah. uh, actually African heritage in there as well. But 
I think that when Meghan Markle, when it was clear that she was going to marry into that family, it seemed like an opportunity for the royal family to actually be less alienating to black British people to say that yeah. you can see us as a symbol of Britishness that does not exclude you, that isn't mutually exclusive with your idea of Britishness. I'm not sure that would have worked personally for me, but I think it was an opportunity for the institution yeah. to show that they embody the ideals they claim to rule over. Britain claims to value diversity, meritocracy, social mobility, all these things. Um, and, and that was an opportunity that was so profoundly missed. And actually, instead of starting to embody those ideals, I think the royal family proved to many people that they really are not ready to yeah. change and represent progress. So, you know, when it comes to the death of someone like Prince Philip, I, I think there is this real mixed emotion that, you know, somebody has died, an old man has died. He's a yeah. fascinating yeah. historical actor. I mean, Very you know, he's, 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 he's the personification of the European heritage of his family. His DNA yeah. was used to identify the remains of the Romanovs who were murdered by the Bolsheviks. Yeah. His yeah. life is a reflection of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. His marriage is a legacy yeah. of King Victoria's project of unifying European royals. It's so interesting. Yeah. But this idea of forced mourning that I should feel some personal loss because these people represent my identity is something that I really have to push back against. And it's very difficult to talk about this in a vacuum because if I'm seen to not be partaking in this system of forced mourning, yeah. going back to what I was saying earlier, it's, it's evidence that I'm a bad immigrant, that I'm not really British and I hate this country and I'm disloyal and I'm unpatriotic and I should go back to where I've come from. Yeah. So I, and I should add that you, you have a piece coming out in the Guardian. This will run Wednesday, so people um, should should check this out. Um, I, I, you know, so what? I mean, to take this in more um, you know proactive direction, what would it mean for Britain to address these issues? Right? Uh, I mean, what if someone had done this report correctly? If the royal family had you know taken on board uh, the opportunity that you point out they missed with with Meghan Markle? What are the types of changes, whether they're policy changes or or societal changes, do you think are most important here? It starts with an admission of British history. And that might sound academic, but it's really practical because, for example, the royal family have never acknowledged that they ruled over an empire which was explicitly based on a white supremacist ideology, the idea that British people were racially and civilizationally superior and that they should civilize, subjugate and exploit other races. That was the overt ideology of the empire in living memory. Britain has built itself off the back of that exploitation for centuries, and that's present in every sector, whether it's finance, academia, the arts. There is no institution, historic institutional sector of the economy that doesn't have that rooting in the colonial model and imperial exploitation. And because that's never been challenged and there's never been a break, there's never been a moment where Britain said, we did this. There's never been a civil rights movement. There's never been yeah. a normalization of the fact that this deep structural unfairness exists. And because we haven't had that, there can't be policies that are grounded in 
a true understanding of the extent of the problem. So I don't see how we can have any policy. You know, there may be some policies that help, but that would be luck because they are not grounded in really understanding the history and origins of these problems. And, and instead of doing that, it feels like we're moving further in the other direction. You know, after Meghan Markle gave her interview to Oprah, Prince William came out and said, you know, we're not racist, that we're, we're completely not racist. Yeah. And, you know, anyone who works in anti-racism, as soon yeah. as you hear someone say, I'm not racist. We're totally you know, not racist over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not racist. And then suddenly the front pages of our papers were full of pictures of him hugging black people. I mean, it was just, so cringeworthy. Yeah. Um, but but there is this complete deep intransigence, unwillingness to admit what our country is founded on. And, you know, to this day, you get rewarded in Britain by receiving an honour from the Queen, which is named after the empire. The message being, as a black person, if you want to be recognised for your work, the condition is that you need to celebrate the exploitation of your ancestors. It is that overt. And yet, if you say that, you're still accused of being obsessed with being a victim. So it, we're locked in a complete gridlock. And the only way we can move forward is from some kind of admission of what's happened here. And it's not subtle events. It's very, very recent living memory that has affected all aspects of life. So it doesn't really seem to me like a huge amount to ask for. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you can't move forward without understanding your history. Uh, the last question I want to ask you is that, that given these challenges, gaps, um, how important is the global solidarity here in the sense that you have, you know, you have a Black Lives Matter movement in the US. We've talked to activists in places like France who are fighting against police violence and structural racism. But but is how, how important is the, the interconnection between these movements? Do you feel like they're connected? Could they be better connected? Are you, are you coming to USC to connect us? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, part, it's part of the idea because as a black British person, I think I've always looked up to the ways in which the African-American community has a narrative, has a coherent identity, is organized. You know, we don't have any equivalent to HBUs. We don't have an idea of ourselves as able to create our own institutions. And that's partly because Black Britain is very has a very different story. Most black British people you know, have more recent stories of immigration by choice, not by force. You know, they come from very disparate parts of the world. But at the same time, I think because of that relationship with empire, many black people came to Britain thinking they could just integrate. Um, and even though that didn't happen, it's made it harder to achieve a, a coherent sense of blackness and unity. So I think that there's so much we can learn from the African-American mentality and the audacity of creating, organizing, fundraising, building that I just see, you know, every generation in my lifetime. But one of my frustrations with America in general is that I feel as if there is not enough understanding of the, the links that you all have to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but when I hear about racism in America, when I hear Americans speaking about racism in America, it, they very rarely connect it to the history of empire. Yeah. You know, America was part of the British empire. The same racism that we experience as Africans or Caribbean people in Britain was taken to America by white British people. And there's yeah. such a common origin story. And there's so much similarity in the resulting institutions so and our foreign feel, policy yeah and and our foreign policy and so there is such an opportunity to make those connections 
And instead, I feel like we often are very inward looking and that feels by design. You know, it's a kind of divide and rule. Imagine if you linked the black diaspora, if we all had a sense of our shared struggle, if we were all organized, how powerful a movement that would be. And I can see that it's not in the interests of established systems of power to facilitate that on the contrary. But I think we as people who are aware of this and who are interested in this history and in this moment really have a responsibility to look outside of our own communities and see the, the, the links and the uh, similar work. A good example of this is reparations because the momentum that I see in the US in the movement for reparations at the moment has so much in common with the momentum in the Caribbean, for example, where uh, there is international litigation demanding reparations from European colonizing nations. And it feels as if those movements are happening in a much more disjointed way than they should. And I'm not trying to flatten these as, as into a, a single narrative. I know that they're different experiences and different cultural and economic problems, but at the same time, there is a common origin. And so it makes sense to at least have that awareness of the, the, the common response. Yeah. Well, I hope conversations like this kind of move us and nudge us in that direction. Um, thanks uh, so much. It, people should check out uh, Afwa's book, British. Uh, read her in The Guardian. Uh, follow her on Twitter. You'll be a smarter and, and wiser person for doing it. So, so thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> it was a real pleasure. Thanks again to Afwa Hirsch for joining the show. Uh, thanks to uh, HBO Max for making a bunch of cool stuff and Netflix too for all these weird art heist shows. I don't know. You have any, any new books for you? Yeah. So I, I Tommy, uh, and this could be a tease uh, for potential future guests, but I've been reading The Committed by Viet Ninh, who like also was the author of The Sympathizer. Um, awesome. Great novel, amazing story, spy novel, novel about politics but above all like just an incredible human story that he tells and an indelible character that he's invented so uh I, I, that's my current novel right now oh that's good i i just started Reaganland, which is like the the most recent rick perlstein you know sort of look at the history of conservatism in the u.s they are big meaty books this one i think it's like 800 pages again but i'm excited about that i'm also going to read um hunter biden's memoir because i was listening to his interview on Mark Marin's show. And like, yeah. like, like I've been a Marin fan for a long time. I probably haven't listened in a couple of years because like other stuff was going on. Um, but like Marin, as you know, someone who's been in recovery for a long time, having this conversation with Hunter Biden about, you know, his experience over the last few years in, in drug use and alcohol abuse was really, it was a pretty amazing uh, conversation and it had a lot more empathy than, you know, like any political news reporter would have had. And I don't know, it was just, I I highly recommend it. I'll, yeah, I'll check check out that podcast too. Cause I mean, like I had that feeling of watching that play out where you're like, dude, this guy's like a human being. Like, like what is going on with this guy underneath all this politics and attacks and addiction? And it sounds like he, he exposes that in a pretty raw way. Um, Which, you know, I think I have a lot of admiration for and better to channel his, you know, his voice into that, um, you know, then, well, then just about anything else he could be doing, I think, because it's, it, yeah. it's very helpful to other addicts to, to be able to see that and, and empathize with it. So uh, definitely worth checking out. I mean, I just can't imagine losing your brother, who is your best friend, your rock, the person who like got you through everything, having all these substance use problems, and then 
having the Trump family just be the most vicious, cruel fucking people on the planet who basically thought they could humiliate you and your father out of him ever running in the first place, right? And it's like Don Jr. still makes fun of uh, Hunter on his Instagram every every other day for just for being an addict, as if that's not like a human failing that could happen to every single one of us. And it's got to be tough having like, okay, your father's this wildly successful politician. Like that's already hard for totally a lot of people to deal with. Then your brother is this hugely successful political figure. Um, so before you even get into the tragedy, like that's just hard, right? And, and then you layer on the fact that your bro- your brother dies after having lost, you know, your mom. I mean, just the, the guys had a lot of cards stacked against him. So it's good to see him out there, you know, trying to, to channel that in a constructive direction. Yeah, say your piece. Don't let these other people define you. That's, that's bullshit. Um, okay, that's it for us this week, uh, but we'll, we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmal Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. <laughs>